Good morning. Uh, if you want to grab your Bible, uh, let's open up to the book of 1 Kings, uh, and more specifically 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, if you remember, we've just started this brand new series, learning from the whole story of Elijah. And what we're saying is, we today live in a time very much like Elijah's. You see, among other things, for the first time in centuries, we're surrounded, aren't we, by multiple faiths and multiple gods. It really wasn't all that long ago that pretty much every country basically had one or two or at most three religions, but that's certainly not the case anymore. I mean, just in this city, you don't need me to point out, there are multiple, multiple, multiple religions. So, whereas in the past, uh, the big question used to be, do I want to believe in God or not? Now the question very much is, how do you know which God is the true God? And as we're going to be seeing in today's passage, that was very much the challenge facing Elijah and his generation. Before we get into it, very quickly, I want to catch you up with the story so far. If you remember, it all takes place in Israel during the 8th to 9th century BC, when a guy called Ahab was king. Now, Amir, 58 years before Ahab came to power, King Solomon had overseen the building of God's temple in Jerusalem. And under Solomon's rule, the empire had spread and grown in influence on the world stage. And if you recall Solomon's father, David, he was the greatest king Israel ever had. He's described in the Bible as being a man after God's own heart. But now, just 58 years after Solomon, Ahab and his wife Jezebel have this very organized and deliberate agenda to snuff out all worship of the God of Solomon, David, and their forefathers. More specifically, they were seeking to spread the worship of the Baal of Tyre and Sidon, who is this kind of rain or storm god. And it has to be said, they were doing a pretty good job of this. And so, After a while, what happens is God sends his prophet Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel and says to them, I'm going to send a drought. There won't be a single drop of water in the entire land until I say so. It's like God's way of challenging this false god. It's as though he's saying, we'll see who really is the Lord of the storm. That's the point. We're going to join the story today. There's been a drought in the land for three years, and as I'm sure you'd imagine would be the case, things are getting pretty desperate. And so right at the beginning of chapter 18, Elijah tells Ahab to meet him on Mount Carmel. He says, bring all the prophets of Baal, gather all the people together, and we're going to have a contest. We're going to have something of a showdown, and we're going to see once and for all who is the one true God. What we're going to see in the account that follows is how to discern among all the competing spiritual claims which faith and which God is true and which one is false. Basically, we're going to learn three things here. First thing we're going to learn is why there should even be a contest in the first place. Secondly, how you know a false God. Thirdly, how you know the true God. Let's pick up the story in verse 20. Let's see what happens. So Ahab 
summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but again, not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord." And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. All of which begs the question, first of all, why should there even be a contest? I mean, when Elijah says, we're going to see who the true God is, which one's true and which one's false, the average person then, and I guess the average person now, would say, why do we need to decide which one's right? and which one's wrong. I mean, aren't all religions fundamentally the same? Aren't they all equally valid? Why decide one's right and one's wrong? Who wants to do that? Why do I have to choose? You can have your religion, I can have mine, and you're an intolerant bigot if you say otherwise. But to say all religions are basically the same, all religions are equally valid, is the one thing Elijah says here you must not say. Elijah comes right out. He attacks this view head on. He says, how long will you waver hobbling between two opinions? I mean, if you think about it, it is actually a pretty illogical position. When you say nobody has a superior view to anybody else, that's to assume you have a superior view to everybody else. Well, when you tell a person, you mustn't say your view of spiritual reality is superior to anybody else's. You're saying to that person that your own view of spiritual reality is actually greater than theirs. Uh, Do you see, you're doing the very thing you forbid. And so Elijah's saying, at the end of the day, there is no neutrality. Everybody has a view of truth that says mine's the ultimate, mine's superior, mine's the best. Or else, let's face it, we wouldn't believe it, would we? If we didn't think it was the best, we'd go and believe someone else's beliefs. So we're going to have to decide whose claims are true and whose claims are false. Which leads to our second question. How do you know, how do you work out if you're worshipping a false god? Well, let's return to the passage. Let's see what happens next. Just seen, haven't we, how Elijah challenges the myth of intellectual neutrality. We mustn't keep wavering, assuming that every religion is equally valid. As we read on, we're also going to learn that there is no spiritual neutrality either. If the true God isn't your master, inevitably something else is your spiritual master. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are so many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! 
but there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself, which is another way of saying maybe he's on the toilet. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. And so they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound no reply, no response. Now, just by way of an aside, not about you, but for many years, maybe it's my ignorance, maybe you you realized this ages ago, but I thought of Baal as a specific god, a bit like Zeus or someone like that. But the word Baal is actually a generic term for any god. It's a word that really means spiritual Lord. In this story, this was the rain Baal, but there's also a beauty Baal and a military Baal and a party Baal. It's like every created thing was potentially a god or a Baal. They pretty much worshipped everything. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's the problem with those primitive people, let me tell you something. They knew something that you and I don't. They admitted things that perhaps we don't admit. They knew everybody worships something, that everybody effectively is under the spiritual power of something, that everything is potentially a Baal or a God. Let me give you a quick example. On billboards right across this city, you're just barraged, aren't you, with images of incredibly thin, beautiful women. There's no escaping them. Wherever you look, they are there. Now, I can't help thinking that these so-called primitive people in this story were onto something. I mean, what are those pictures? Listen, you're naive if you think they're just giving you helpful information. No, there is a spiritual authority about them. There is a spiritual power about them. And they can seep into your mind and your soul and over time begin influencing you and exercising that power. It's like when you take any created thing and you make that thing the thing that really makes you happy, the thing that really makes you significant, the thing that really makes you acceptable, the thing that really gives you worth in life, it effectively becomes a Baal or a god, and you end up into the equivalent of Baal worship. Now, I know we're so modern, and we're so advanced, and we're so secular, and we don't believe that kind of stuff. But just hear me out. If you're a young girl looking at those images on those billboards and they seep into your mind, they kind of get deep into your soul, they end up becoming this kind of influence, this spiritual power. What happens to you? Well, at the very worst, you can develop eating disorders because, you see, the image is saying to look like this, that's power, that's worth. If you look like that, then you're somebody, 
And so you'll do anything and everything to try and look like that. I'll tell you what else it does. If it passes into your soul, you're going to give men too much power in your life. Because you're going to have this deep need to have a man tell you that you are desirable to them. But it's not just for women. If those pictures pass into the mind, the soul of a young man, what happens? You end up saying, well, that's the kind of woman I want. But in reality, there are very, very, very few women who look like that. And so you find real women, unairbrushed women, don't attract you. They're always too tall or too short or too fat or whatever, but your desire has been aroused. It's like you have to have those kinds of women, which is why so many people over time end up getting hooked on pornography. That's where you go when you're stressed, when you need some kind of relief. It ends up having this power over you. And what happens to those of us who are aging? As I say us, I'm part of that crowd now. Do those things pass into our souls so they begin to exercise some kind of spiritual authority over us? Absolutely they do. I mean, it's a terrible thing, isn't it? When you're minding your own business, walking along the pavement, and you pass by image after image of beauty, 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 and then suddenly you get to one of those kind of windows where it's a bit darker, and you catch a sudden reflection of yourself, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, why? Why does that bother me? Why does it bother you even more if you're getting to look like me? I'll tell you why. In other cultures, you get grey, you lose your hair, you get older, and in those cultures, elderly people are kind of revered for their extra wisdom. Not so in our culture. You end up very much on the scrap heap. I want you to know, if you are not religious, and you say, well, I'm just neutral in all of this. I really don't know which religion is for me. Oh no, this passage is telling you everything can be a god. Everything can be a Baal. Everything is a Baal, whether it's career or physical beauty or family or having kids or maybe it's a particular person. Whatever it is, there is no spiritual neutrality. You're into the equivalent of Baal worship. It's like you will worship something. But I also want you to know, it's not just non-religious people who are kind of shocked when they're told that they're into the equivalent of Baal worship. People who have gone to church all their lives, I'm telling you, they are even more shocked when they find out they are potentially into Baal worship as well. Because what we see in this passage is another one of the marks of this primitive Baal worship is role reversal. At the end of the day, it's all about your performance. It's all about you twisting God's arm to give you what you've earned and what you deserve. I mean, just have a look at this religion. First of all, these people dance. You think, I I told you, that is so primitive. No, do you know what that's saying? They go before their God to perform. When they go before their God, they don't go as a friend. They don't go assured of relationship. They go to perform. They have to 
perform. They, they have to do their little dance steps. You, you have to impress this God. You have to do everything just right. So maybe, just maybe, he might answer your prayer. Let me give you an example of this. I know a guy who's a good friend of mine. He pretty much lost his faith. So over a period of time, he prayed this really important prayer, and it felt to him like he wasn't answered. And over time, he, he used to complain to me. He said, look, I followed every biblical principle for praying. I believed, I prayed in faith, I confessed all known sin, I, I claimed all the promises, I rebuked the devil, I pleaded the blood of Jesus, I, I thanked God ahead of time for the answer, I even fasted for goodness sake. I followed all the rules and God didn't come through for me. I did everything right but it just didn't work. So I'm just not sure there is a God anymore. Someone else once said to me, I followed every biblical principle for bringing up my kids and they still didn't turn out right. What kind of God's that? I'll tell you what kind of God it is, is Baal. Because in Baal worship, you switch roles. You end up being the one who is wise because you know precisely what you need and what is best for your life. You're the one who is intrinsically good because you have done everything right. And God's the one who might be distracted. He's the one who could be asleep. He's the one you have to kind of cajole and put pressure on and twist his arm. He's the one who needs you to do everything for him. It's like you end up having to perform just right in order to get what you know you absolutely deserve. That is the equivalent of bar worship. Now, I wonder how many of us in this room can relate to that. In short, what we see in this passage is that one of the marks of bar worship is you end up being under the spiritual authority of something. And yet you keep trying to be in the driver's seat. You try to have control. You try to control it with all your might. But in the end, whether you realize it or not, it ends up controlling you. Now, ultimately, the real way that you can tell that something is an idol in your life is when you find you can't get what you need and you start to slash yourself. Maybe not literally slashing yourself, but in some way you start punishing yourself. You start beating yourself up. You see, first of all, th th these people, they dance. But when nothing happens, then they start cutting themselves. Try to imagine two people, both of them trying to get the best grades in their exams. Both of them going for the promotion at work. Both of them desperate to be selected for the team. Both of them desperate to get married, desperate to have a family, to have kids. Neither of them does. Understandably, both of them are going to be grieved. But what if one of them, over time, seems to recover, just gets on with their life? The other one can never get over it, ends up hating themselves, beating themselves up over it. Why? Because it was a Baal. If you start to slash yourself when it won't answer, if you start slashing yourself, beating yourself up when you can't get what you want, it's a sure sign that it's become like this spiritual authority 
in your life. It's no longer just a good thing that we can use for our pleasure. It's become like a God thing. It's become the thing that you look to as your functional savior. It's become a spiritual authority over you. Listen, all of us, if we're honest, if we're willing to turn the mirror onto our lives, all of us potentially have baals in our life. And we're trying to control it, but if we don't wake up to what's happening, it can very easily end up controlling us because we're trying to perform for it. And if we fail it, we not only get extremely angry, we can end up slashing ourselves. We hate ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We think in some way we're a failure. We're not as good as the people around us. We feel like we are worthless. So just to recap, if you want to make any kind of progress in your spiritual life, I'm kind of hoping you do want to make some kind of progress in your spiritual life. If you do, the first thing you have to get over is this lie, this fiction. There is no such thing as true and false religion. There, there is. There, there is truth and there is falsehood. Second thing you have to get over is this fiction, this lie, that you're not into Baal worship. That's just for primitive people. Now, if you were raised in a good Bible-believing church, or if you've never darkened the door of a church before, chances are, either way, you are into bar worship of some kind. You might just never have realized it. And you're never going to find the true God and experience his goodness in your life until, first of all, you recognize your false gods. So thirdly and finally, how do you find the true God? Well, we get the answer in the final part of this passage. Verse 30, then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they'd done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I've done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burnt up the young bull, the wood, the stones, even the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. How do you find the true God? The answer is only by fire. 
What do I mean only by fire? Well, very quickly, let me explain two different ways before we finish. First of all, if you are going to find God, very often you'll end up having to do it through fire in your own life. You see, usually speaking, it's not enough to merely intellectually find God. Normally speaking, God has to send some kind of thunderbolt into your life. It's kind of the subtext for this whole story. If you remember, God has sent this drought to show that he's the Lord of the heavens. He's the one who's Lord of the storm. He's the one who sends the thunderclouds. So these people, they've lived three years without water. But here's what God knows. It's one of the things that's so fascinating about this whole event. If God just sends them water, they'll effectively drown spiritually. Do you see, very often there's nothing so dangerous than a happy life. If God just gives them an abundance of water, they're going to say either, well, Baal did that, or else they're going to say, well, I'm fine the way I am. Life's great. I'm okay. It's like when you are successful, very often it just confirms you in your idols. You know, in my experience, people rarely find God when there are just showers of blessing coming down on them the whole time. And so what God has to do is send down a thunderbolt so close, it kind of singes the hair off your eyebrows, or he has to knock you straight on your back. He has to intervene somehow. Something has to happen to grab your attention, which is why he will allow you to run up against things you can't cope with. There are times when he will allow seasons of pain in your life. He will let you go through difficult times. Why? To highlight your need for him, to draw you closer to him. And you might be sitting there thinking, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I mean, that sounds incredibly cruel. And it would be if that relationship, if that outfit, if that handbag or that pair of shoes, if that new mobile phone or if that academic achievement or that career, if that car or that lifestyle would ultimately satisfy us. But it won't. It's because we were made for relationship with God. And because there is endless potential for us to find joy in our relationship with him, that allowing us to go through difficulty to wake us up to our need of him is actually, ultimately, the greatest expression of kindness and grace. The tragedy is, when we go through times and it feels to us as though God isn't doing anything to rescue us, and rather than allowing him to walk with us in those situations, to walk with us through those times of fire coming into our lives, it's that we turn our backs on him. And I don't say this lightly, and I do understand it is hard for some of us to take But I want to appeal to you today to see those situations that you are struggling with right now. Those things in your life that feels like you are in an intense period of fire. See them as an opportunity for you to experience firsthand more of God in your life. 
Listen, you never find the real God unless, first of all, fire comes down into your life. A thunderbolt someplace. Something to wake you up. Something to shock you into action. You see, although God doesn't like the brokenness of the world, there is coming a day where all things will be mended and put right and restored. Sometimes he will use the brokenness of the world to save you from absolute spiritual blindness. As Elijah prays in verse 37, send the fire so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. So that's the first thing. You're going to find God. More often than not, you have to do it through fire in your life. Secondly, if you want to find God in the midst of all of this, you have to see, you have to notice where the fire actually came down. There's a passage in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus and the disciples are actually talking about this very event. That They're going into a town uh, and the people won't let them in. They reject Jesus. And the disciples are absolutely livid. They say to Jesus, should we call down fire to burn them up like Elijah? So they're thinking in this passage in 1 Kings 18, fire of judgment, fire of God's justice, fire on sin. But Jesus rebukes them. See, they don't properly understand the Elijah story. Just a few verses later in in Luke chapter 12, almost for sure in connection with this, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Here's what I think he's saying to his disciples. He's saying, you don't understand the story of Elijah very well. The fire didn't fall on the people, it fell on the sacrifice. And if you picture that story as me being Elijah calling fire down in judgment, you've got it all completely wrong. Now in that story, I am the equivalent of the sacrifice on the altar that received the fire of judgment. That's where I am in that whole story, says Jesus. Never ever forget, Jesus Christ went up Mount Calvary ultimately as our sacrifice. And he took, he bore the fire of justice so that you could have in your life the fire of God's love and his power. Let me put it to you one other way as we draw to a close. As we've seen, Every other God eventually says, slash yourself for me. Let's say the main thing in your life is art. I don't want you to hear this message, I need to stop being an artist. Don't stop being an artist. But wake up to the fact, realize, when art is your God, where it's the thing you look to for worth, for pleasure, for satisfaction, to be your savior, Eventually, it will say to you, dance me, slash yourself me. It will drive you into the ground. Your career, success, physical appearance, your kids, whatever it is, if you make it your God, it will take you all the way into the ground. But there is one God, and only one God, who doesn't say, slash yourself for me. There is one God, and only one God, 
who was slashed for you. Every other God will make your blood run. There's only one God whose blood ran for you. There is no other religion on earth that even remotely suggests there is a God whose blood ran for you. So here's the only way you're ever going to overcome the power of idols in your life. You have to see that Jesus gives you freely what every other God says it'll only give you through performance and ultimately through your blood. Jesus gives you through his blood what every other God demands through yours. And you can't just say, well, great lesson. I'm going to try really hard and not let those things have too much control over me. That's a form of stoicism. It will never work for long. You have to start by seeing the fire coming down on the sacrifice. You have to run and see what Jesus has done for you. You have to see a place where you can get the assurance, the ultimate assurance of your beauty so that the beauty God doesn't bother you anymore. You go to the place where you can get the assurance of your significance so the significance God doesn't bother you anymore. You need to go to the place where you can get the assurance of unconditional love so the love God doesn't bother you anymore. And the only place you get all of that is at the cross when the fire of God fell and consumed the sacrifice which Jesus made on our behalf.